As we're continuing in our study in the book of Mark, I would like to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 3, and I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you're so good to us. We've been in your presence already in this time of worship through singing, and we thank you that you put a song in our hearts. I thank you that some of the folks that we have not been able to hear from are getting better because they've been ill and they're lifting their voices heavenward. We pray for those who are still at home because they're getting over something. Grateful that you continue to bring us into health and that we keep seeing more and more health as we make our way out of a pandemic into the endemic, knowing that uh, we're just normal human beings catching good old-fashioned colds and stuff. And we pray for good health for everybody. Father, I'm grateful that you also promised through your son just before the end of his work on earth that after he was gone and then after he was crucified, died, stayed in the tomb for three days, resurrected, appeared to so many witnesses, and then ascended to be with you, that you would send the Holy Spirit, the other person of the triune God, the Trinity, to remind us of all those things that he had taught us and to guide us into all truth. That's what we're counting on this morning as we look into your word because we know that the whole process would be futile without your spirit guiding us into your truth. And so we welcome everything that you have for us individually and collectively as a local body of Christ. Father, teach us through your word today and transform us so that we can take one step closer to you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to talk a little bit about community versus crowd today because the passage lends itself to that. And I'd like to begin by sharing a very brief version of how I became a musician. My parents exposed me to music very early on. Literally from before I was out of my mother's womb, I was listening to music because she would crank up classical music on the stereo when she would walk around the house. And when I got into church, I was in the nursery and we were exposed to music instantly. And so I was exposed to that, but I wasn't a participant. I wasn't a part of a community. I was just an observer and I was intrigued by it and I wanted to learn more because of what I heard. Then as I got a little bit older, I started seeing concerts. We had that music memory contest in elementary school that if they did a needle drop and we could name not only the symphony that that tune was from, but which movement in the symphony and who was the composer. And if we got all of those correct, then we were treated to a symphony performance by the Phoenix Symphony. And so I got to do that. And that really fueled my imagination because when you hear a full symphony, like one that Katie's going to play in shortly, coming up, it's an amazing thing. Auditorially, it does things to you, and physiologically and emotionally. It's an experience. So I thought, you know, I would like to do that someday, but I'm not sure how to do that. So then came music lessons, and I realized that violin was not going to be my forte. I did do one solo in church, however. I did holy, holy, holy. And then I got switched over to trombone, and I clicked with that. 
and I liked it. And then I got to be in a little tiny band in fifth grade when I was just first learning how to play that instrument. And then I went to a football game with my older sister, thank you, Kathy, and I got to watch the marching band. And I said, someday I'm going to be in a band like that. Because once again, I was seeing things, I was exposed to things, I could feel the passion for the people that were involved in these things. So I was becoming a little bit of a participant, but at a very rudimentary level. I was a novice, but I wanted to play like those people someday. And then it just kept propelling me to get more and more involved until pretty soon I realized, oh, I am a part of the musical community because I'm playing in different ensembles and different groups and I was taking classes and then I went to college and I was surrounded by more musicians. So it was a very gradual, years-long process to move from being just an observer to becoming an active member in a community. And I thought, you've all experienced that. I know you have. Maybe it's from sports. Maybe it's from martial arts. I know we have a couple of martial arts folks out there. Uh, model rocketry, perhaps you were excited by that sometime because you liked to see things explode and shoot things into space. Maybe you're a gun person. I know we've got several gun guys. Going to go to the range one of these days and shoot a bunch of pie pans and kill them and stuff. And then uh, we've got things like fishing. I always liked being out on the water. I thought fishing was just an interruption to a good nap. Crafting, some of you are very crafty kinds of people. Some of you, Marsha, stamping up. Can I get an amen? I think I heard that all the way from her house. Jewelry making. I know that Lisa Dolinger had made some lovely jewelry. Some of you may have gotten into some of that stuff too. Cooking. Uh, fortunately, I have to have uh, a kudos to the adult child who lives in our household with us. She's a really good cook. And mom's pretty good too, but Callie really knows how to cook it up. Gardening, some people have a really green thumb and they love being able to surround themselves with beauty that way. Growing your own stuff to cook. I knew one guy who had limited space. He just had a little patio area, kind of like what we've got in our condo. So he made himself a salsa garden and he grew just the right material so that he could gather it, cut it all up, put it in a blender and he made his own salsa. Cool. Building stuff, some of you are really good. I call John the fastener man because <laughs> he knows how to fasten anything to anything else. Um, without using duct tape. And then there's woodworking, when you get more of that finished cabinetry kind of stuff. I've seen some gorgeous stuff. My retired pastor friend Lou does some gorgeous cabinetry. He showed me one of his projects one time, and I thought, I'm impressed by that. Robotics, we have somebody in our church who's actually an adult mentor to some kids when they're helping do robotics. I think he ought to put some of his spiritual gifts and robotic skills to use, and we can do some cool stuff on stage. What do you think? <laughs> So all of you are in community in one way or another, and sometimes those communities are subgroups, and so they overlap with other communities. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it's good for us to be thinking about the process of moving from observer and outsider to becoming an active, committed member in a community of some sort. That's where we're headed today. Got it? Are you tracking with me? Good for you. All right. So we're starting to see in Mark's gospel now, as we're moving into chapter 3, a few verses into that, a group of people following the murmurs and the crowd buzz to see what these stories are about, and they're curious enough to, be, to form a crowd, and that's where we pick it up, because they're going to start seeing some things about Jesus that makes them curious enough, some of them to take further steps, because they're going to eventually become participants. Let's start with verse 7, Mark chapter 3. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, meaning the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, all the same body of water, about eight miles across in the northern part. Uh, there's Galilee is up here, and then there's the Jordan River that empties out of the bottom of that and goes all the way down between Jordan onto the right, Israel onto the left, and then it empties into the Dead Sea. So that's giving you a little perspective on that. So he withdrew over there into the north, kind of the northwestern part of Israel with his disciples, and large crowds followed him from Galilee. So that was Galilee proper, the city, not Galilee, the lake. They followed him out to the lake. Then when they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and if I had a whistle, a referee's whistle, I would time out right here because I have to put in a parenthetical statement here because it's important for context and history. Idumea, there's a word we don't think of very often, and yet it's an important one here because in the Old Testament, there's this place called Edom, E-D-O-M, the region inhabited by the... Edomites, you got it. Just add ites to most of the Old Testament people and you got it. And that's right, Hittites, Jebusites, Edomites. I'm a Milanite because I live in Milan. Some of you are Selenites. And so Edom was the region inhabited by the Edomites and it was in what we would now consider southern area of modern-day Jordan, which would be to the east of the Jordan River and just across the river from Israel. My cell phone actually picked up a Jordanian cell phone tower on one of the nights when we were supposed to get up and go to the place of baptism in the Jordan River and watch people get baptized. And I thought, we've got plenty of time, honey. Let's go and grab a bite to eat. It feels like I've just gotten an extra hour of sleep, unlike today, which is Time Change Sunday. And we got to the cafeteria, and there were only about a half a dozen people in there, and everybody else looked like they had left. And I thought, oh, something doesn't feel right. It's because it got in a different time zone. My my phone picked up on a different cell phone tower and it switched time zones on me. So we almost missed going to the Jordan River that day. Fortunately, our tour guide was quick and said, the orange bus hasn't left yet. So you can catch a ride with the orange bus. It's only two miles down the road and you can catch up with the yellow bus. And so thank the Lord there was somebody there. Okay. Uh, I, I digressed on that. It's not in my notes. I'll probably have to go over by two minutes because of that, but hang in there with me. So, Edom is a word which means red, which comes from which person? Happens to be the brother of Jacob. Esau, you remember. Good for you, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the other one, the one that was ruddy or red in color, the ruddy one, and the one whose descendants would always be at enmity or at odds, always be oppositional to the descendants of Jacob, who became what we know now as the Jews. And so that starts that whole lineage that starts to separate and go all the way down there. And the Bible is very correct on that because there has always been enmity between those two people groups. The Edomites later then became known as the Idumeans because of a different language inhabited by certain people that were leading in that area. So the Idumeans gravitated west a little bit. Some of them crossed over the Jordan, intermarried with different people. They were in the southern part of Israel. And so all of a sudden we realize that history is being made and Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled, would you happen to guess which despicable person was a descendant of the Edomites or the Idumeans? That would be Herod the Great. Bum, bum, bum. Evil guy. And so certainly that was definitely enmity against Israel and the people of Israel. Now, Herod the Great was the papa 
It was like a whole bunch of Pharaohs. There's a whole bunch of Herods. And so it wasn't just one guy that ruled for 120 years. It was several people, including Herod the Great. He was the one who was in charge when the Magi were going looking because they were following the star and they're looking for the baby that had been prophesied. And then he passed away after a short but awful disease. Yeah. And then his four sons took over and the region was divided into four regions. And one of them was even as despicable as Daddy. The acorn didn't fall far from, far from that rotten tree. And that was Antipas. And Antipas is the one that John the Baptist spoke out against publicly because Antipas had taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, as his own. Not good. John the Baptist was preaching against that kind of immorality. And guess who it was, which Herod, that had John the Baptist beheaded? Antipas. So we can see the Idumeans coming all the way down there from the Edomites and the Old Testament's pointing ahead in history to some of the things that were happening right here at this time and in this region. Time in. The regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon were also included from where these people were coming from to bring crowds to where Jesus was. Now, Tyre and Sidon, if you're looking at the Lake of Galilee up here, go up about 10 o'clock and over to the Mediterranean Sea. That would be in what's now considered southern Lebanon, and that was the area of Phoenicia, the sea people, the Phoenicians. So Tyre and Sidon, also kind of infamous cities for another reason, but that's where these people were coming from. So you got people from way up over here in what's now southern Lebanon, way down here in what would be southern Israel, and some all the way over across the river, not terribly far from some, which would be now in Jordan, which means that this was miles people would travel, mostly by foot, just because the buzz was so big, they had to see what this fuss was all about with Jesus Christ. Verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. We got to see a boat that was in a museum that had been dug out because the water levels got low enough that they saw it and they were able to preserve it. And it would be just about big enough for Jesus and a few of his disciples. And we could imagine him right out there on Galilee teaching the crowds like that. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. May God add the blessing to his word as we look into it. One reason that I heard one pastor say about why Jesus would tell these bad spirits, don't tell people about that, First of all, it was not his time, and he still had a lot of work to do, and he didn't want to be revealed too early because he had to prove his authority over time before people really got it that he was Messiah. But secondly, you just don't want that kind of person telling you the, that's not the kind of publicity you're wanting. <laughs> it was not the kind of publicity that he was seeking, and so he just kept telling them strict orders, don't tell others about me. Well, let's approach this passage now by thinking about a crowd as contrasted with a community because we're still early enough on that we're seeing that there's a bit of a community being built in the disciples around Jesus but there's not a lot of people yet in Mark's gospel that have started to move from crowd to community so I want us to explore that just a bit in a crowd there's always somebody who's curious and that's what drove these people to travel many miles to see Jesus they were curious they started to get a little bit caught up in the fervor and the excitement I don't know if you've been to a concert that sometimes the, the pre-concert 
nerves and jitters are there and everybody picks up on that and then at the first notes that start to get played everybody kind of goes whoa it gets really exciting and so there's that kind of collective excitement that grows from a crowd they get caught up in the crowd's energy I mean I could imagine that we got a quilter a couple of quilters in our congregation Louise is a marvelous quilter you know you've seen these cooking shows on TV where you can get so excited about people cooking and there's a timer and stuff like that who would have thought that could be a, a sport that you get so excited about, such a thrill. I can imagine that there would be a quilting contest. Oh, my goodness. I could get so caught up in that. Oh, no, her bobbin is broken. Ah. So, anyway, I'm just trying to include everybody in this whole idea. So, other people are thinking, what's in it for me? That's what was driving people to move forward so they could get close to Jesus because they've seen other people walking away healed. They're thinking, I've got a malady. I need to be healed from that, too. And so they said, I want to get closer too. So a lot of the curiosity was really, well, if he can do that for them, couldn't he do that for me too? So I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. It's what drives a lot of people to go check out things that they wouldn't have checked out before. They're thinking maybe there's something good here for me as well. And Jesus never turned people away for that motive. He accepted them where they were, even if all they were doing was coming to him just to get healed. Like the woman with the issue of blood, 12 years with that malady. And all she wanted to do was just touch the hem of his garment. He didn't rebuke her for that. In fact, he commended her faith for that. So also in a crowd, there are skeptics and cynics. The skeptics are those who are, and there are always going to be skeptics in every crowd. Um, there were, a friend of mine, the podcast partner, Rick, this is not in my notes, so I've got to collect my thoughts here. But it's a really funny story. So if I get it right, it's going to be funny. And I hope you'll laugh out loud. If I don't get it right, I'll just hold up a sign that says laugh and go ahead and laugh anyway. But he said he was in uh, a production at a huge church. I mean, they had several thousand people in Phoenix before he came up uh, to where he is now, which is in Colorado. And they had almost everybody cast for this big production they were getting ready to put on. Except, and the guy stood up at the last minute and he said, okay, folks, we only have a couple of more people that we need to fill a couple of these roles. We need a couple of skeptics and a couple of cynics. And one of the guys in the back said, yeah, like you're gonna find any of those. <laughs> yeah, like you're gonna find any of the, okay. Yeah, the buildup wasn't as good as it could have been. I'll work on that next time. What he was showing was that there was a cynic in every crowd and a skeptic, and the guy was acting like a skinnick. You see why it's so funny? It's, it's not a funny joke if you have to explain it. The, the skeptics have good questions, but they're open to good evidence. If they're asking questions, it's not necessarily to try to trip somebody up. They're not necessarily looking for a debate. They're literally asking good questions because they're skeptical and they need evidence. But the cynics are to the opposite extreme of uh, being open to the gospel. They're just closed-minded. They're stiff-necked. They're hard-headed. They're like concrete. They're permanently set and thoroughly mixed up. <laughs> and that's what some of these people were like. I, I have a good friend of mine. He's in heaven now. Served on a committee with him, Judge Jim Sheridan. He'd been a lawyer for years, and then he became a district court judge. He went to a pastor's class that was supposed to take six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> he kept asking questions like a cynic, and the pastor was kind enough to keep answering his questions. It went on for a year and a half because Jim Sheridan was asking questions like thinking like a lawyer, but he wanted to make sure that he got everything, and he moved very slowly from being a complete cynic 
totally cynical because of what he had seen in his courtroom, for one thing, to becoming a skeptic, and then he started getting pushed over, and he saw the passion of the people in that church, including his own pastor. And he thought, these people actually really believe this stuff. I mean, they're acting like they mean it. And when they sing, they're singing with their whole hearts from their toes. And so he kept getting caught up in that, and he got pulled. And finally, after a year and a half, somebody said, uh, it's your turn to bring the orange juice and the bagels for our Sunday school class, Jim. Can you go there? And he said, sure, I'll be happy to drop that off. And he told his wife, I'm going to go to the church. They gave me a key, and I'm just going to drop that stuff off. And she said, are you allowed to go in there by yourself? And he says, I would think that I would be allowed to go to my father's house anytime. And he said, my wife, Sharon, looked at me and went, what did you just say? And he said, I did say that, didn't I? Yeah, I it is my father's house. She goes, I think you're converted, Jim. <laughs> she pointed it out to him, something that was dawning on him for a year and a half, and it finally caved in on him. He became a wonderful teacher of what used to be the pastor's class because he knew all the answers to those questions that he himself had been asking. So he was a cynic turned skeptic turned fully committed follower and a member of that community of faith. And I love to see that because we know that in scriptures, we've got other examples of people like that. Think about Saul persecuting the church. He has that road to Damascus experience. Bang, he's a different guy. Now he's actually a spokesperson for the movement. And then we've got Joseph of Arimathea. He was actually a member of the Jewish council. And yet he was the one who went to Pilate and got Jesus' body down off that cross and buried him in the family's garden tomb not far off. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus by night. See, there are some folks that are going to eventually move from being a crowd member and just curious to the inner circle and committed members of that community. So what does a community have for us? It gives us some commonalities. There are these three common things for sure. Common purpose. We all sense that common purpose when we know what the Scripture says, especially about what we're living for. And then we have this common identity, and we have a common assignment or mission, which also gives us a sense of purpose. Those things are all a part of being a community. That happens in any one of those other communities, in some of those sub-communities that I talked about earlier. They all have a common purpose. If it's model rocketry, it's to fire off rockets. If it's having quilting contests, it's to beat those other ladies at quilting. If, if it's a common identity, it's built around who we are, not just in comparison to each other, but in our case, compared to what God thinks of us, because he's our most important person. And then a common assignment. We all have this common assignment, which is to glorify him, and that gives our life purpose, because no matter what we're doing, we have opportunities to glorify him. Here's some truths that I think are important. Number one, consumeristic culture. Would you think that might apply to America? Consumeristic culture opposes kingdom community. I mean opposes it. Because consumerism says, do this for me. It's like the little baby birds with their beaks open in the nest saying, feed me, feed me. And entertain me, make me feel good. I want you to do this for me. I'm consuming this stuff. If I don't get what I feel like I need, we've got plenty of others to choose from. I'll go elsewhere to get this stuff that I feel like I need right now. That's consumerism, and that's our culture. 
It's driving so many people. But kingdom community, which is really opposed to that, says, pour yourselves out to other people for their benefit. In fact, Paul says in Romans 12, 3 and Philippians 2, 3, I'm combining the two and creating a new verse for Paul. So this is the unparaphrased, unpublished version. It says, think more highly of others than you do for yourself and pour yourself out to them. That's a lot of Paul's thinking. In the Christian community, we exist to edify others, build them up, rather than just consuming that which is going to make us feel either more spiritual or more influential or more powerful or just better than we did before we stepped in. Second, another truth, kingdom community members transcend culture. Now, I don't want you to be shocked by this, but I think you'll understand where I'm coming from. In the community of Christianity, I actually have a whole lot more in common with a Christian who lives, let's say, in Syria or in China or in Moscow, Russia, than I do a lot of people that live in America. That's within the Christian kingdom community. I have more in common with some of those folks. Now, I experienced that because I've been on a mission trip in Zimbabwe, in Africa, in Haiti with our elders doing some teaching down there. Uh, I was in Sweden, Continental Singers, with people I could barely communicate with. And there was this instant connection. The lady in Sweden says, Oh, yeah. music. And I said, Music. I got music. And she goes, Sit, sit. So we sat. And she got this turntable, and she got an album out, and she put it on, and I couldn't read it because it said, <laughs> And then she dropped the needle and started to play, and it was the Hallelujah Chorus. And we all went, oh, Hallelujah, because that's the same word in the Hallelujah Chorus. And she goes, we worship the same God. <laughs> and I said, you're right, we worship the same God. We're believers, we're brothers and sisters. She was showing us that even though we had so many things not in common, including a language specifically, that we had the most important things in common. And so it transcends cultures. It transcends geography. It transcends everything. That's the kingdom mentality. And that too is also very opposed to our earthly culture, which tends to want us to become very tribal and protective of our local values and this little group's values, and we're going to drive wedges between all these little groups. Kingdom says, nope, all are welcome into God's kingdom. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is open to everybody. You just have them come. I loved what Liz was saying about a church that she went to, and it's at your mom's church, where people are so open and welcoming. And you would look out in the congregation and see a lot of people who look pretty different from one another. That's because these people love on folks that don't necessarily come from the same background. Not dressed the very same way, might not have grown up in church the way some of these other people have. That's the kingdom mentality. That's what I long for. I long for that kingdom mentality to reach out so that people can say, I love being with these people because they're going to love on me and accept me right where I am. And they love me enough to pour into my life so that they're not going to leave me where I am. And they get both of those things. So we have the same Savior, the same story, and the same assignment. That's because kingdom people worship the same Savior, Jesus Christ. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 we have the same story, or at least a similar one. Now, some of our stories differ because I grew up in a Christian home. I accepted Christ very young age, and then I had a lot of nurturing people around me so that I wasn't uh, yanked off a cliff because of a terrible 
cataclysmic experience in my life. I haven't had any of those, gratefully. I think God saved me from those instead of saving me out of those. But what's similar about all of our stories, if we're a believer, is that we're all dead in our sins and we're brought to life in Christ. That's the part that's the same. Maybe at a different time in our life, it may be in a different method, different way that we came in contact with some of these folks, but the story is the same for every one of us. We were dead in sins, but now we're in a new life with Jesus Christ because of what he's doing and transforming us. And I think it's important for us to reiterate that some people might say, oh, well, I was born a Christian. And I would say, uh, I appreciate where you might be coming from. And maybe what you mean is, as long as I have memory, I recall being raised in the church and I, I have always felt that Jesus was my Savior. But nobody can be born a Christian. Every single one of us has to take a step of faith by accepting the gift God is giving to us. So there may have been a point, even though you were very young, like I was, when I said, okay, I, I, yeah, I get this. And I need to exhibit my faith to other people. I need to pour it out there publicly. So I got baptized because that's like a, a public expression of my inward commitment. That was an important thing in my life. But you can't be born a Christian. Your parents' faith has nothing to do with your faith. There's no efficacy. There's not some sort of an inherited gene of Christianity that passes. In fact, the only gene that's passed along, I think, is that we're all sinners. <laughs> Every single one of us have done that. So we just need to get that clear to say that if you're on the outside looking in at this group of people in faith, you're going to have to take a step over that line of faith at some point and say, I willingly choose to follow Jesus Christ. That's important for all of us to know. And then we have the same assignment. We're all ambassadors for the gospel. We're his agents. Dun, 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 dun. We're the agents. Um, my numbers on the softball jerseys that I was so kindly given says double O. I'm thinking about getting some tape and putting a seven at the end of that thing. But, <laughs> yes, all of this, Paul says in Corinthians 5, 18. Now, when he says all of this, we have to look back to say, what is he saying all of this refers to? Let me tell it to you real quick, and then I'll finish that. All of this, meaning all of this being brought to life after being dead in sin, all this being given eternity as a gift, if you're in Christ, all of this being given an imperishable body, a glorified body, in place of this earthly tent which wears out he's talking about all these things leading up to this passage all of that stuff being reconciled with the holy god all of that is a gift from god but all of us know that you have to receive a gift if you never receive it then you don't own that gift you don't have it so we appropriate it by faith by stepping out then he says who brought us back to himself this is that reconciliation that paul's so big on he says who brought us back to himself through christ and god has given us this task of reconciling people to him. He's just deputized us. You're a part of the posse, so get out there and ride. He says, you all are given this same authority because we are a priesthood of believers, plural. We are ministers of reconciliation, and that applies to all of us as believers. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against him. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 19, and he gave us, here again with this plural, us, and he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. He loves to repeat himself just to make sure we're getting it. And in case that's not enough, Paul, would you make sure that we understand it fully? Okay. 
So we are Christ's ambassadors, he says. God is making his appeal through us. We're his agents. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We all operate within our spheres of influence. Some people call that a domain. I'm not used to calling it a domain. I've always heard spheres of influence. It means the same thing. So if you're reading one commentator or another or certain translations, you might hear the term domain. Basically, we're all operating in those areas where we live, work, and play. That's our sphere of influence. Those are the people that we normally come in contact with. And guess what? My domain, my sphere of influence, is to be a vocational minister. But your domain takes you into information technology and quilt making, especially if you're competing with other people. Business, education, sales, research, government, the law, customer service, music, medicine, homeschool teaching if you're a homeschooler, service industries, and many, many other domains. See, your domains will take you into places that no vocational pastor can reach. We can't reach out into all those spaces. So God's plan to redeem the world is not dependent, gratefully, on just pastors. And I'm really glad to know that because it would be very frustrating if I thought that it all laid on pastors' shoulders. Here's something I haven't said often enough and it needs to be said, so let me just say it. God's plan to seek and save the lost is not dependent upon pastors. God's plan is to sprinkle all of you into your domains where you are salt and light and where you carry the gospel because you're carrying Christ in your heart through the Holy Spirit into your domains, into your spheres of influence. And as you're doing that, you have opportunity to demonstrate and to speak about your faith every chance God gives you. That's how he's going to have us as this ministry of reconciliation. Acts 17 tells us that God established all the nations and he designed this plan so that people from every one of these nations would seek him, this is Acts 17, 27, would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any of us. That's encouraging news for me because that means some of the people in your domains are not far from God. Already, they're close. They just need to see somebody who's fleshing out what Christ is like to them in their domain. So let me ask you a question. I'm going to start getting this and bringing it. I'm going to reel it right in to something kind of personal. I know most of you, so I think I know the answer to most of these, these kinds of questions. But have you moved from being a member of the crowd to being a member of the Christian community? And if you have not, would you like to take a step closer to becoming an active participant, a vibrant member of that community, as opposed to just being an outside observer and looking in? Because you can. You can. These things take place when somebody takes a step toward becoming a committed member of a community. First of all, you begin to resonate with the values of that community. You resonate with those values. You think, wow, these people care for one another, and they're caring for people they don't even know. They're taking a collection for all these people that are moving here because they lost their homes in Afghanistan, and they're going to try to help sponsor a family and put them up, and we're hoping to meet them someday. They're giving online to help support people, missionaries who are taking refugees in from Ukraine over in surrounding nations. These people really care. I like that value. Or... These people are deeper and more caring at a deeper level than most of the people I work with 
or that I'm on a sports team with or that I associate with. These people really care. They genuinely seek to make the world a better place. Apparently, one of their values is redemption because they're always looking for a way to redeem something. And I like that about them. And they have a passion that tends to be contagious. When I'm around them and they start talking about things that they really resonate with, that they're passionate about, I start to feel a little bit of that resonating in my heart. And I start to get passionate too. It's like that crowd with a concert. They pick up on our passion as well. Another thing that happens when you start moving from crowd to community, you begin to resonate with their familiar stories. Because somehow deep inside, God has given us all the awareness that we're not okay. All of us know that, that deep down inside, we have this self-condemnation. It's a part of every human being. Why is that? Because everybody has sinned. We know that. So we resonate with that being brought from death to life and that we can't do that stuff. We can't get rid of all that feeling or with those sins. We can't wash away those sins by just simply doing good deeds. It can't happen that way. So they start to resonate with that because they understand, yeah, that makes sense that I could never do that, but there's somebody who paid that price for me. And then they begin to resonate with the assignment that they see us carrying out because I got to tell you, every single one of us as human beings needs to feel like we're on purpose about something. We want to be a part of something that's bigger than we are, bigger than our local church is, bigger than our local family, bigger than our softball team, bigger than our quilting club. We need to be bigger than something, and being a part of God's plan to redeem a lost world is the biggest and most important and longest-lasting purpose anybody can have. My experience in college was that I saw a bunch of Christian kids hanging out, and they were kind of weird because they were passionate about singing with their hands raised. And I grew up in a Baptist church, and we just, we have rotator cuff problems. We just don't raise our hands that high. And so I started going to these Wednesday night meetings because they had free food, and there were pretty good-looking Christian girls going to this meeting. But what I started noticing was that I was getting caught up with the passion that I heard from them as they sang, and I started resonating with the scriptures that were being read and with the devotional time that this young pastor was sharing. I said, yeah, that's my story too. I resonate with that. I, I belong here. I want more of that. And so I started moving from an outside observer to becoming an active participant, and I became really connected with them. And what took me over the edge in becoming a part of that community, I went on a weekend retreat, and people opened up. And I thought, man, they're not holding back. They're real. They're real about their struggles. They're real about the fact that they're not perfect and that they sometimes feel like they're faking it for other people, but they're not where they would like to be. But they're grateful because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it, and so I'm trusting in him, and it's a daily walk. And I heard this stuff on this retreat, and I thought, I could dig this. I could hang out with people like this because I'm like they are. And I need that same kind of collective group of people that are edifying one another and building each other up and helping each other on that path. So that's a part of what God used to help propel me into becoming much more committed to this community of faith. How about some of us who have been part of the community, but we feel like we're just not sharing our faith adequately? Confession, a lot of pastors feel inadequate in this role as well. It's scary. I mean, I don't feel like I have that gift that allows me to just walk up to a total stranger and in five minutes engage them in a gospel presentation. 
That's not the way I've been wired. So I look for ways that God can use me the way he's wired me, and gratefully he will use all the ways that he has wired all of us to help participate in doing that. But it's scary. But I just want to give you this simple acrostic before I finish this morning because it just capsulizes the gospel in simple form. And if this gets embedded in your brain, then whatever salt and light opportunities for some sort of sharing your faith comes along, you'll have this as the core that you're thinking about. Okay, gospel, G-O-S-P-E-L. Say that with me now, G-O-S-P-E-L. Ready? G-O-S-P-E-L. Good. G stands for God. God created us to be in relationship with him. He desires that. Oh, our sins separated us from God, and they continue to separate us from God. S, sins cannot be removed by good deeds. P, paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. I saw on the news just two days ago in another state, can't remember which one, a guy saw a woman trying to cross a street and a car was almost out of control going too fast and he ran in front of that car. The woman got away safely. He pushed the stroller out of the way just in the nick of time. The lady and the baby were both saved, but he took the hit and he was killed. And that's an illustration of what Christ did for us. I mean, he took the hit for us. When he was on that cross, we were destined for sin, which kills us for eternity. And Christ stepped in. He's our atonement. He's our substitution. And then E, everyone, everyone who trusts in him alone is given eternal life. It's not a matter of trying. It's a matter of trusting. We Americans have a hard time with that because we are the pull ourselves up by the bootstraps kind of folks and we feel like I got to try harder. It's so counterintuitive. But what I found is that Christians who understand grace and quit trying and start trusting are some of the most productive people. And they're doing it winsomely and they're doing it from the right attitude because they're not trying to earn God's favor. They've already got God's favor. So they're just loving him back by doing all these acts of service. And then L... Life with Jesus starts now and lasts forever. That's the gospel. There's nothing like a personal admission of your trust in Christ to make an impact on those in your sphere of influence. Sometimes all they need to hear is for you to sprinkle in little things like, wow, God did that for me. And just little tiny things that you can sprinkle in. People know who to go for if they get into a spot where they want somebody to talk to or they want somebody to pray for them because you have made it known that you are a believer. Joy had that happen. My wife, she was working in a tall building. She was the administrative assistant to the building manager and uh, she would just kind of sprinkle in little things and people knew. She would start to have people coming into her office and saying, have you got five minutes? And five would turn into 15, turn into 20 and she was such a good listener. It was like she was the uh, unauthorized chaplain of that building. And she would say, can I pray for you before you go? Is that okay? Am I going to get in trouble for that? And they say, no, I really appreciate that. And they'd cry because she's praying for them, and then they walk out of the building. It's an amazing thing when we're salt and light, and we just sprinkle in what God has done for us in our daily walk, and we can all do that. I'd like to pray for this community of faith and to pray that we'll all be that kind of salt and light that loves people so much that they're just drawn into this reconciliation that God offers so freely. Let's pray together. Father, 
I would like all this to be true in us and in those that we connect with because we are a part of that community of faith. And I thank you that we don't have to go it alone. I'm thankful that we don't have to manufacture any kind of thing to make this happen. You've already put it in place. And we just need to live for you knowing that you already reside in our hearts and we can be ourselves, the transformed selves, in the spheres of influence that you have given us. And then I pray that we're going to watch more and more people get drawn into that reconciliation with you as a result. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.